technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today. And we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up. Something that I find really interesting is making healthcare more accessible around the world. We're so, so lucky to be living in Canada where we have access to high quality healthcare, but it's also important to acknowledge that that's not really the case everywhere around the world. And I think what our artificial intelligence can do, specifically computer vision, is early onset diagnosis of different diseases um, and also making it mobile. So it's a lot more inexpensive and you're actually raising the bars. You're listening to The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth, a Nokia original series. Rhea Karamanchi is by definition a whiz kid. The 16-year-old has spent the last two years upgrading technology that goes back thousands of years all after meeting the visually impaired grandmother of a friend. Today, her smart cane is packed with haptics, GPS, and artificial intelligence vision systems, thanks in part to funding from investors like Microsoft and others. And she hasn't even graduated high school yet. In between classes, she's guiding a team of developers, giving speeches, and mentoring others. She sat down with Futurismic to talk about the future of healthcare and began by rewinding the clock two years. So how did a chance encounter at a friend's house lead to, what, a 14-year-old starting up her own company? Yeah, so honestly, it was very crazy. And I think as a kid, I've always been really passionate about technology and coding. And I think what fascinated me about it was how it could be leveraged to solve big problems around me. So when I was at my friend's house, it was her grandmother that actually came over and she was visually impaired and she was bumping into a bunch of things when trying to get around the house and she used a device called the white cane. And I actually got to sit down and talk to her and she was telling me that the device that she was using actually caused a lot of injuries to occur because it could only detect obstacles on the ground and nothing above the ground from knee to head level. And I thought that was pretty insane because it was such a big problem that was causing so many challenges. But to find out that something like this had been so traditional and never been updated in nearly 100 years, it was really, really baffling. And a big part of me wanted to see how I could maybe come up with a connection between my focus area and things that I was really passionate about to help people in this community. So I honestly had no idea how to take it forward from there. And it consisted of like a lot of brainstorming and a huge brain dump of ideas. And eventually the idea of a smart cane was born and it was iterated upon and iterated upon and a lot of interviews and chatting with people who were visually impaired to get a better idea about some of the problems that they faced. And it was an amazing learning experience from there. So basically what you're telling me is you reinvented the stick. Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs and, and you've hit on a very important point, which is you had an idea, but you actually went to the people who would be using that end product before coming up with any solution whatsoever. Yeah, I think... One of my biggest values is creating solutions to problems that matter. And I don't think you're ever going to have a good understanding of what the problem is unless you actually go to who you want to end up selling something to 
to broaden your understanding because you need to get their perspective. And a person like me who was sighted, I actually didn't have that. So that's why it was so important, especially for this type of problem, to constantly get the input from your users and build a solution around that instead of creating something and then asking people if they would buy it or not, because that really changes whether or not your company or product or idea is going to be successful in the long run. So what is the technology that goes into it? So right now there is object detection capabilities. So as I said, a big problem with the white cane is that it can only detect obstacles on the ground and nothing above the ground. So we have an ultrasonic sensor that actually uses haptic feedback to let a person know when and where an obstacle is in front of them so they can avoid that based on that. And in addition to that, GPS navigation through haptic feedback and then computer vision for object classification. So with that haptic feedback, I suppose as a user approaches an obstacle, there's a vibration in the handle? Yep, that's right. And then you talked about bringing in uh, more technology into this, using those cameras that are on board to investigate artificial intelligence? Yeah, I was actually super interested in artificial intelligence. So I'm actually a part of a program called the Knowledge Society, which is a youth accelerator exposing people to emerging technologies to see how we can solve a lot of important problems. And through that, that's where I got exposed into the field and I started building a lot of stuff specifically in the area of computer vision. And I thought there, there was a pretty neat intersection because what I learned through talking to people is that a lot of tasks which we as sighted people find easy on a daily basis might be a little more, more challenging uh, for people that are visually impaired, whether it's reading nutrition labels or documents um, on paper or getting a context of what's happening around them. So I thought that we could possibly leverage your phone camera on an application that's integrated with the cane so that basically when you point your camera at different things, it can describe to you what they are. Really? So this is what's in development now? Yeah, so I've actually built a few products within the space. I was actually able to integrate one of the projects that I use for real-time object classification within the smart cane. When I spoke to the science fiction author and internet rights activist, Cory Doctorow, he had a really interesting point about able-bodied versus disabled. And his point was that all of us are only temporarily abled that over time as our as entropy kicks in for our bodies um, we are we are going to be increasingly in need of a technological aid in one way shape or form for some people it, it might be mobility others it might be sight but it's interesting that, that you brought up this, this point that we we're building this technology now but there could be actual applications beyond what you're currently working on yeah for sure i i totally agree with that i think we are definitely very temporarily abled and something that really excites me is the role that technology is going to play in order to combat that. Uh, some of my friends are actually working on taking a more proactive approach to healthcare instead of reactive um, with uh, genome sequencing. And I think it's so cool because it's about how we can not only extend our lifespans, but extending our health spans. So the amount of time that we are able in our lifespan. Ideas are a dime a dozen. The real success comes from execution. What lessons have you learned about executing on an idea? I think in terms of executing on an idea, you have to have a really good understanding about what the problem is in the first place. I don't think that you should automatically create a solution and then look for a different problem that it solves. And when it comes to executing an idea, 
iteration is so important because you're not going to have a perfect product right away. It really comes from talking to people, implementing their feedback and constantly going through that cycle. And I think that is very, very crucial to consequently get a successful product in the long run. And I think failure will come across along the way. But what is what's important when executing it is to acknowledge that and be prepared for that. And also take in failure as an account as a learning experience, because when you fail, in the end, you are learning something. It isn't the worst case scenario. So perseverance and grit is so important, especially being an entrepreneur. Where did you get that grit? I think for me, it came with learning. I have a huge passion for continuous learning. I don't think it should stop within the classroom or after you finish university or a master's degree. I think it comes in everyday life. And for me, I think that curiosity stemmed from my inherent nature of just wanting to know more about how the world works. And grit definitely came along with that because when I was actually trying to learn a lot of new things and many areas that I wouldn't have normally went in deep in school, like artificial intelligence or genomics, grit actually came along with it because I would face a lot of obstacles along along the way. And it was that grit and willingness to overcome those obstacles that helped me learn from those and learn from my failures to eventually create a working final product. See, I'm really disappointed in that answer, frankly. I'm the father of a 13-year-old girl while she's 13 going on 23. And I would like to think that mom or dad played a big role in making you who you are with this insane amount of energy and enthusiasm you have that I have not seen in a teenager before. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think my parents definitely encouraged me so much to learn. And I think it was them telling me that, yeah, failure is okay They played honestly such a big, big role into my mindset that I have today and all of my mentors. And I'm so, so grateful for them always encouraging me to find something that I loved because definitely if I wasn't doing that, something that I loved, that grit wouldn't be there. And I'm very, very grateful for the mindset that they helped instill in me at such a young age and encouraging me to take a more unconventional path taking into account that a lot of my friends and people around me along the same age aren't really doing similar things. Well, let let me perhaps get a little too personal here. Do you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? No, I don't. So you've started a company, you're traveling across the country, you're the only teenager I know who has a relationship with the Economic Club of Canada, and you routinely participate in pitch competitions with some of Canada's biggest names in business today. Um, How do you think those prospective suitors find your energy and drive intimidating? I'm not sure if they find it intimidating. I hope it can be something that's refreshing and inspiring in some way. And honestly, every single person that I meet, I'm so inspired by. I learn from every single person. I think every single person also has something to add value to. So I hope that at the same time, while I'm adding value to them, that they're definitely adding value to me along the way as well. So it's definitely a two-sided approach to things. You mentioned the Knowledge Society, and I know that you attended the Ryerson University DMZ base camp, that eight-week summer incubation program. Um, How did that go for you? Oh, it's amazing. The DMZ has been so supportive in everything that I've done. I'm so grateful for 
all of their help along the way. It actually started when I was in grade seven and I had an initial venture called Smart Streetlights, which was basically trying to introduce IoT sensors into streetlights in the city of Toronto. And I was actually encouraged by both my parents and a previous program that I attended called Zero to Startup to try applying for the base camp at DMZ. And that summer, I was honestly introduced to a completely new world in entrepreneurship and actually how it works to start a company and was surrounded by a lot of really smart people around me who definitely inspired me a lot to go deeper into the field. And then last summer, I decided to apply again with my new venture, Smart Kane. And again, it was a completely different program because it was about two years later. But I learned so much again. We did so many workshops as to what the fundamentals of entrepreneurship and running a business were and even got to do some tours at Google and Facebook and learn from a lot of the experts there and also some of the companies that are working through the DMZ right now. The mentorship there is amazing and just the support and focus on the founder as well instead of just a company is incredible. I've got this computer uh, analogy theory about our brains that much like computers, we operate on certain clock speeds and that some of us are operating at a faster, higher clock speed than others. Do you subscribe to that view as well? Definitely a lot of us operate at different clock speeds, but I definitely think environment is so important and it shapes you as who you are as a person. And definitely on a daily basis, when I am going to school, the clock speed at which people are operating is very different from the environment that I do have at the Knowledge Society. But what I, in my opinion, I think every single person has something really unique about them and they're all really good at their own thing. So I don't think, I guess, your clock speed determines your intellectual capability. What I really appreciate in people is their curiosity and willingness to put in the work and that's something that a lot of people have within the Knowledge Society, and it's that motivating environment that where so many people are curious about a lot of different things, but they're always pushing you to be your best self and reach your highest potential. And what I really love about it is you have a whole pool of people to work and brainstorm and solve a lot of important problems with as well. Spoken like a true leader. And you are leading a team of people. At last read, I think it was, you've got 11 people working underneath you. Is that correct? So it's actually a group of four right now. And um, it's some software developers, an MBA, and a mechanical engineer. And we're all working together to take this product and make it a reality. So super, super grateful for my team. They're honestly incredible people. Not just amazing at what they do, but amazing people as well. So it's a constant problem solving process and they're incredible. How does it feel to be a teenage leader? I think at first you honestly got that feel when I was trying to recruit people to see if they wanted to join the team. Uh, some people that thought of you as a lot younger, but what I see now is a lot of people on my team, they don't really think of me as a younger person. Um, they think of me as a peer and I think of them as a peer and I have so much to learn from them as well. So it's constantly learning from them, them learning from me on different stuff and working together to solve problems. So I definitely think it depends on what kind of environment or setting you're in as to what people perceive of you as based on your age. So I'm glad that's definitely not a limiting factor in this relationship. 
And I can imagine as well, when you walk in the door looking for funding for your ideas, that that's a hurdle you have to overcome as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I try to use it um, in a positive light as well, not getting discouraged by the fact that some people might think I am a lot younger. And I think what may help with that is, you know, if you have a good idea and you have credibility and the stuff that you built is legit and can help a lot of people, um, there are a lot of smart people out there that will not consider your age as a limiting factor in terms of that, but they'll look at what you've actually done. So what's your advice for a young entrepreneur encountering the hurdle of their age? I think perseverance is so important. In the beginning, along the way, I've gotten so many no's or people that weren't very interested or didn't want to work with me on solving this kind of problem. So I think although, let's say, the first seven or eight doors that you might knock on will say no or may give you a discouraging response. Although it may suck at that point, um, it's easier to say than actually do, but just constantly keep on going for it. Because if you stop at the eighth and then the ninth person would have said yes, you never know what could have happened. So I think that perseverance is so, so important. And again, not taking it um, into view as a failure, but just taking it as a learning experience and taking what you learned and implementing it to see, okay, maybe if I could pitch a little better this time or learn about this specific area more to help me succeed better the next time. Tell me about technology that interests you now. Uh, you mentioned artificial intelligence and you're looking at incorporating that into the smart cane, but there are a whole host of other new technologies that are really at the nascent stage now that we know are going to change our lives dramatically in the future. What, what piques your curiosity today? I think something that definitely piques my curiosity is human longevity. It's so interesting. And like I said, it's not just lengthening your lifespan, but it's lengthening your health span. So making your quality of life a lot better instead of like after you're 60 or 70, having it deteriorate. But it's just really interesting for me to think about living a life like you are 21 or 22 um, until you die. And I think it has some amazing applications and then artificial intelligence as a whole, I think it is such a broad umbrella term for a lot of things happening within it. So something that I find really interesting is making healthcare more accessible around the world. We're so, so lucky to be living in Canada where we have access to high quality healthcare, but it's also important to acknowledge that that's not really the case everywhere around the world. And I think what our artificial intelligence can do specifically computer vision is early onset diagnosis of different diseases um, and also making it mobile. So it's a lot more inexpensive and you're actually raising the bar for the kind of results that you'll get and making it equal globally. So I think when it does come to a stage where something like that could scale, that would be very incredible. And an example that I can give you is specifically using computer vision for breast cancer detection within patients or even skin cancer detection all through the use of your mobile phone. So that would be that would be really great. Yeah, you mentioned Canada you know, with its universal health care, that that is a unique benefit that, that you get to have. But I suspect as well that you also have a unique benefit being in Canada, too, when it comes to AI, because the country is a leader, if not the world leader, when it comes to artificial intelligence developments, you have an opportunity here to pick up the phone and people are going to answer. Yeah, um, I am so grateful and very, very, very lucky to be living in a place like Canada and specifically around Toronto, where 
the minds and there's so many smart people working on such important problems here and the great thing about it is you can just reach out to them and a lot of people will get back to you and they're people that you can set up meetings with have calls and talk to them work on problems with them so it's very very great and i think the environment that you're in is so crucial to um that and also definitely taking advantage of the place that we live in today. You mentioned this tying specifically artificial intelligence and machine vision together as these tremendous opportunities for everything from breast cancer on up. Uh, where does that go from here? You know, we, we talked to at Future Rhythmic Galit Ariel, who is an augmented reality expert, and she has some really interesting views on when we start tying these technologies together, that we're going to get some pretty amazing unintended consequences as well as some intended consequences. What do you think? I think in terms of using machine vision and computer vision specifically for different disease diagnosis, I think it has a very positive outcome as to how things will work. But I think along with technology progressing, there's a lot of regulatory issues that should be taken into account. And I think technology is moving at a much faster rate than regulation is. And within governments, an issue that I see is it's hard to regulate something that you don't understand. So the people that are eventually making these kinds of policies, I think should be um, have a better understanding about what's going on in the field so that they can get a more holistic view and create policies based on that. But within this specific field of computer vision for breast cancer detection, another obstacle that I see is just the accuracy of things and making sure that it does surpass the ability of a doctor. And I think will definitely not eradicate the role of a doctor, but instead it's also serving as something that's augmenting their capabilities. Let's say a, something that can double check instead if a person sees and mis, misses something. Right, like I think IBM Watson was one of those early examples of artificial intelligence being leveraged within cancer research. And just acknowledging that as much as a doctor would want to be able to read every single research report that they possibly could on the latest developments in cancer treatment, they can't. And that we need to start leveraging these new technologies to assist us. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a lot of these will be serving as great tools to help augment a lot of researchers' capabilities when they are looking into areas like cancer research to help accelerate the progress within the field exponentially. So let's fast forward 20, 30 years from now. What does the world of healthcare look like to you? I would definitely love to see a world where we are starting to take this proactive approach to healthcare. So not waiting until after we get a disease and then going through the different processes and taking medications in order to cure it eventually, but instead knowing early on if what your likelihood is of getting a certain disease and possibly even using something like CRISPR-Cas9 to eradicate uh, your likelihood of actually getting that. I think that could be a very, very interesting world that we can live in. And another really important thing is making sure that this isn't happening in just one corner of the world, but in a lot of different corners of the world and eventually making it so that it's accessible to everyone. Yeah, I think it was William Gibson who said the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yes, exactly. It's crazy to see how far we've come here, but 
we are definitely living in a bubble right now. So there's a lot of things happening on the in the, around the world that we're not aware of. And it's important to make sure that a lot of these advances do become evenly distributed, not just geographic wise, but across different community groups as well. You mentioned the gene editing system CRISPR. At this point in the game, let alone 30 years from now, but today I think one of the biggest issues that we're addressing is the is the ethics surrounding it. Where do you land on that? I think it's important to use any kind of technology for good and not take advantage of it. I think where CRISPR can come in is in terms of actually eradicating diseases and helping people live healthier and longer lives instead of things. I know there was a concept of creating designer babies. I think first it's important to prioritize what is important, what is considered ethical and take an approach based on that. So I'm definitely leading towards more the healthcare side of things instead of the more nice to haves because then you have a larger divide because it's going to be a lot of the more wealthy and affluent people that may be able to afford something like that and creating designer babies in terms of that concept. And I think that's just going to broaden the gap that already exists. But I think what we should be focusing on is bridging that gap. But you point out that regulatory issues today are a big solution to that problem. But the problem of regulatory solutions is that our, our lawmakers generally aren't science literate, I think broadly is an effective way to describe it, you know, and even just technologically generally. Well, I can only imagine what you must have thought when you watched the American legislators grill Mark Zuckerberg about the nature of social media, right? Mm -hmm. How can we have any confidence that our political leaders can wrap their heads around the issue sufficiently to provide the regulatory framework necessary to ensure that new technologies are used for good, not evil? I think it could be really helpful to get people to consult with for them to help broaden their understandings. I think everything can be learned, definitely not in such a short time span because these things definitely take time. If you want to get a more in-depth understanding and a 360 kind of view as to what are the pros and what are the cons. So talking to people that are the experts in the field that have a non-biased perspective would be very helpful, I think, for these legislators to ensure that they do have a full understanding before making policies on things. So as I mentioned, you know, Cory Doctorow, science fiction author, they often deal with dystopian futures, and we're in the middle of editing that particular episode as you and I speak right now. So I, maybe I'm, I'm just caught up in his world, but are you optimistic about the future or are you worried? I'm so optimistic. I'm really, really excited <laughs> for what's going to happen in the future. I think we're at a point where, you know, in the 1990s, there was just one thing that was going to be the next big thing. And I think at that point it was the Internet. But now there's so many things that are going to be the next big things, whether it's artificial intelligence, genomics, virtual reality, quantum computing. We're so lucky to just be living right now, and I just feel so grateful as well. I can't wait to see what happens because the amount of change that just happened in the last 15, 20 years hasn't even happened in the last few centuries. So I think that is incredible how we went from just having dirt on the earth to just creating things that are just unfathomable to a person in the past. So. I can't wait to see what happens and the amount of problems that we can solve through leveraging these as really important tools. 
see the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting futurhythmic.com. The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series.